for God's will because I know when I pray for God's will that uh, that prayer is going to be answered. And um, I know many of us have paid attention to the headlines this past week with the Roe v. Wade um, striking down decision by the Supreme Court. That was a 50-year prayer request uh, that people have been waging on behalf of the unborn. And so I just want to take a moment here at the beginning of our service, I think it's appropriate for us, to praise the Lord and to thank Him for answered prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you're working out your plan of redemption um, in the lives of your people. And so, God, we just we pause here today uh, to recognize that a landmark decision has been made, uh, that a true turning point, perhaps, in our country's future has been made. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, for all that you have um, orchestrated um, in past years to bring about the decision that happened this past week. God, we ask that you would continue to watch over and protect um, folks like the Walton uh, Pregnancy Center and others, Lord, who stand, continue to stand in the gap for the unborn. Lord, may you just continue to invigorate them and bless them in their ministry, um, reminding them, God, that again, you are sovereign and you are in control. Again, God, we just thank you for all you do. We uh, ask your hand over the rest of our service today, that our hearts will be open to receive your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I, uh, we've been in a series uh, looking at the great man of God, Peter, and you can tell I got a little bit of something I'm on the backside of that I'm working out, so um, y'all just have to hang in there with me. Um, one quick thought along the lines of what we just prayed, I, I did, knowing that that was coming up, I had been planning um, to preach on the subject of abortion um, and what does post-Roe v. Wade America look like. And so I'm planning to bring that next week, and I'm excited to be able to share some thoughts with you about how the church can be a compassionate arm for women who find themselves in a difficult situation. Um, and so I'm looking forward to sharing some of that with you. After next Sunday, um, Terry is actually going to be preaching uh, for me as I'm going to be heading out of town. That's on July 10th. So in two weeks, Terry's going to be um, preaching for us, and so I hope you'll come back um, to hear him in two weeks as well. Um, again, we've been in a series looking at the life of Peter. Uh, we come to the end of the gospel stories about Peter today. Uh, John chapter 21, where Peter is restored by the Lord Jesus or reinstated by the Lord Jesus after Peter has denied uh, the Lord in his most desperate hour. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. This is Jesus and Peter along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus restoring Peter back to um, his place of leadership. Uh, John chapter 21, beginning at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, go a couple of steps backwards 
um, and then work our way back toward that encounter that Jesus has with uh, Peter. Um, going back to why this conversation in John chapter 21 happens in the first place. And we have to go back to Matthew chapter 26 to find that out. Matthew chapter 26 verse 30 um, is when uh, Jesus announces to the disciples what's about ready to happen to him. He's going to be um, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be crucified. And so here's Peter's response to some of that. He says in verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 31, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, and he quotes here from the Old Testament, Zechariah 13 and verse 7. He says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so Jesus is predicting to the disciples that, look, when I'm arrested, when I'm brought under... Um, uh, on trial before Caiaphas and the rest of the, uh, the Sanhedrin, when that happens, uh, y'all are going to scatter. You're going to desert me. You're going to depart. Uh, I won't be able to find you in my most desperate hour. Verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, again, I'm sure that all the disciples are struck by this. I mean, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Um, it just seems odd to the disciples, I'm sure, to think, why would we abandon you, Jesus, when you're at, this, at the height of your popularity. This doesn't make any sense to us. And so as is customary with Peter to try and explain the situation, Peter opens his mouth and he wants to give Jesus his assessment of the situation. Peter says, verse 33, Peter answered Jesus, though they all, pointing to the disciples, though all of the rest of these folks fall away, he says, I will never fall away. In other words, Lord, there may be some yellow-bellied disciples here in this crowd, but I'm not one of them. I will never, Jesus, turn my back on you. And so Peter, uh, is he being a little overconfident? Perhaps. Peter may think he's ready for the trial ahead, but the Lord Jesus knows different. And Jesus goes on to tell him in verse 34, he says, Well, Peter, since you brought it up, um, truly I tell you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You know, Jesus has been right about everything else he's predicted. Jesus has been right about everything else that he said. And so I'm sure this hit Peter as a real blow. I mean, do I, is Jesus right in saying what it is that, he, that is going to happen here? Well, we know the rest of the story. Peter does deny Jesus three times, in fact. Later that same night, Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. He's put on trial. While the trial is going on, Peter stands outside keeping vigil, and someone recognizes Peter and says, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? Peter says, I don't even know who you're talking about. Somebody else an hour later says, hey, I recognize you. I think you're one of Jesus' followers. Peter says, I don't know the man. And so finally, a third accusation a little bit later into the night, Peter very abruptly, very bluntly, very emphatically denies any association with Jesus the Nazarene. And just as he does that, as Jesus predicted, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 75, and Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter hears the rooster crow, and he went out, and it says he wept bitterly. Um, now let's fast forward to a week after the resurrection, and we've got Peter and the, some of the other disciples, not all of them, but some of the other disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and they're out there fishing. Um, they've gone back, or at least Peter's gone back to doing what he had done before Jesus, or when Jesus had found him. He's gone back to the livelihood that he knows. He's gone back to doing the thing that he knew to do. Um, he's fallen back on his former way of life and fishing. And so, um, is he out there? I mean, he's not out there preaching. He's not out there preparing to be an evangelist or an apostle or anything of that nature. Instead, he's back to fishing. Uh, well, the reason why Peter, Peter has gone back to fishing is because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so Peter basically makes a self-assessment. 
He looks at what he's done and how he's denied the Lord Jesus in Jesus' most desperate hour, and he makes the self-assessment that, you know what, I'm just taking myself out of the game. I'm sidelining myself because I don't believe that I'm worthy. I don't believe that I'm, I'm, I'm basically disqualifying myself from service to the Lord. He thinks that because he has failed Jesus, that Jesus is going to find somebody else to replace him. Now, let me paraphrase what happens next. Jesus shows up on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. It's very early in the morning. Perhaps the first rays of light are beginning to break across the horizon. And Jesus, the disciples are out in the boat a couple hundred yards from shore, the scriptures say. Um, They don't recognize Jesus. Again, it's dark out. They don't know who it is that's calling out to him. And Jesus cries out to the disciples, hey, how's the fishing going? And they say, terrible. Uh, We're not having a good time of fishing at all. Been not not caught anything all night. And so Jesus says, hey, try dropping your nets on the other side of the boat. Well, okay. Um, And they drop their nets on the other side of the boat, and their nets are full of fish. And um, as soon as that happens, Peter remembers another incident where he caught a whole lot of fish and who it was that was helping him catch these fish. And so it dawns on Peter that this guy on the shoreline is actually the Lord Jesus. And so Peter um, jumps out of the boat, the scriptures say. He leaps out of the boat. He swims a hundred or so yards off to shore. When he gets to the shoreline, Jesus is there. He's got a little fire going. They take some of the fish. They cook a little breakfast for themselves, and they have a nice reunion. I've got a couple of pictures for you here. These are pictures of a church that has been built on the spot where it is believed, tradition. I'm not sure this really is the spot, but this is on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, just north of Capernaum. And so this is in the area, at least, where Jesus and the disciples met, would have seen the disciples. But it's the spot where tradition says that Jesus was on the shoreline. He was hollering out at the disciples out fishing. Um, (coughs) Sorry. This is a place called Mensa Christi, and it's called the Table of the Lord. Actually, inside of the church, if you go go and Google and look it up, I didn't have any pictures for you. But inside of the church is just a bare rock, and it's believed that that is the rock where Jesus and the disciples had these fish and had this breakfast together. Um, Skip forward to verse 15. When they had finished the breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, son, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, I want to stop right there and talk about this for just a few moments, because in the English, there's some things that, the, that, that it doesn't allow us to see that's actually there in the Greek language. In the Greek language, we know that there's multiple words that translate into the one word in English, love. And one of those words is agape. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. Peter, um, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? The word agape in Greek is a sacrificial kind of love. It's the highest form of love. It's a love that's willing to give itself for the sake of the object which it's loving. In other words, to give my life, to sacrifice myself for the sake of the one uh, to whom I am uh, making the sacrifice. And so Peter responds, interestingly enough, though, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I fill us you. He doesn't, use the word same, he doesn't use the same word agape. He says, I fill us you. Now, the word fill us is where we get the word Philadelphia from, um, and it's a brotherly love. It's a warm brotherly kind of love, but it's not the kind of love where you'd want to, you know, go to the mat and, and give your life for somebody. And so um, Jesus is asking, do you agape me? Peter responds back, of course, I fill us you. So he doesn't use the same word that Jesus uses. Jesus basically asks him, are you ready to sacrifice for me, Peter? Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, well, think, I think given my denial just a week ago, we both know that if I said, yes, I do agape you, that that would be an inaccurate statement. 
In other words, in my mind, my intentions are, yeah, I got by you. Yes, I would want to lay down my life for you. Yes, I would, want to self, I would want to sacrifice for you. But in reality, when push comes to shove, Jesus, you know how I respond or how I have responded. And the best I could, I mean, the most accurate way for me to say this is that, yeah, I have a warm brotherly love for you. Verse 16, again, Jesus asked him the question, asked him the God, about this agape love. He says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Again, Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I fill us you. Take a look at the NIV translation. I um, brought that up for you. The NIV tries to capture this distinction that's apparent in the Greek, but not so much in the English. And they use the word truly love, or the phrase truly love, for where agape appears, and then just the word love for where philos appears. And so the um, NIV reads, um, do you truly love me? And Peter's response, I, of course, I love you. Um, again, why this distinction? Well, it shows how deflated Peter feels. What a failure Peter perceives himself to be. He cannot even tell Jesus, even though his heart wants to, that yes, Jesus, I love you with a sacrificial kind of love. I would like to be able to say that, but, but I would once again be promising too much, aspiring too much, but incapable of delivering on my good intentions. And so that's why Peter responds with a more what he believes to be accurate statement, of course, I feel wash you. Um, this tells us something about Peter. Remember the Peter who used to say whatever he was feeling? The Peter who would walk in the room, again, mouth first, and would just blurt out whatever he was feeling. He was a passionate guy. The Peter who was not afraid to promise big things. I'll never fall away. Everybody else might, but Lord Jesus, you can count on me. I'll be willing to go to the mat for you. Remember that guy? Well, this is a different man who is sitting on the lake shore with Jesus. This man is speaking with a more measured tone. This is, this is a man who has an air of humility about him. And this is a good thing that Peter has, has come into his life. However, when humility comes into our lives, friends, as a result of failure, so we've made some mistakes, we've had some things go awry, and we're humbled by that, there's a danger, we're, we're kind of, of, of self-doubt then creeping in. The humility part's great, but that humility can lead to self-doubt, and Peter's teetering on the edge of this self-doubt. Self-doubt can rob us of taking future risks. It can steal away our ability to dream dreams. In other words, self-doubt can sideline us of our future potential. Again, Peter is teetering on the edge of this precipice. So look at what Jesus does for Peter, verse 15. With each of Peter's responses, you know that I love you, Jesus responds with words like this, then feed my sheep. Verse 16, do you agape me? Peter, then Peter says, of course I love you. And Jesus responds, then tend my sheep. And finally a third time, Lord, you know everything. You know what's in my heart. You know that I love you. So Jesus says to Peter, verse 17, then feed my sheep. With these three statements, Jesus is reinstating Peter. That's what's happening. With these, with these three statements, Jesus is restoring Peter back to his role as the leader of Christ's physical church on earth. Notice what Jesus says. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my, or tend my sheep. These are pastoral leadership roles. Think about that. He's inviting him back to pastoral leadership. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. 
Jesus is saying, Peter, you may think that you are disqualified from service, but I never said that. And so let me be clear, Peter. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Do you ever wonder why Jesus repeats himself three times? I've wondered that before. I mean, is Jesus trying to rub Peter's nose in it? Yeah, buddy, I know that you messed up. I've wondered that before. Is Jesus pointing out Peter's uh, disloyalty? Is that what he's doing here? That's not what I see happening in these passages at all. Rather, what I see happening is that Jesus is driving home the point by repeating himself three times. He is supplanting in Peter's psyche that, Peter, you are restored. You are reinstated. Because as soon as Peter walks away from the shoreline, what's the devil going to do? Are you sure that Jesus wanted you back in leadership? Are you sure that Jesus wanted, wanted you to re return to this role? Maybe, maybe you got a little confused as to what exactly he was saying. And so now Peter has, he, and so now Peter can look back to this, back to the fact that Jesus repeated himself three times. He has a stake in the ground um, in Peter's life where he can look back and say without any doubt, yes, Jesus reinstated me three times, he told me that I was to tend his lambs and feed his sheep. All right, well, that's our passage for today, and so that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question that we ask every week around here, my, my favorite question, hopefully some of y'all's as well. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate that, that Peter was restored by Jesus. He was reinstated by Peter. I see that Peter appears to have grown as a person as well. But what does any of this have to do with me? What difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, after the resurrection, basically, Peter slinks off into shame. He slinks off into shame. He has the incident where he realizes that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He runs down to the tomb. He, he you know, is so excited about seeing the empty tomb. He realizes that the Lord is risen. He meets with Jesus in the upper room there. Jesus passes through the wall, and he meets with his disciples. He eats some fish with them. But then Peter basically goes back up to the Sea of Galilee. He's going through the self-doubt. He's disqualified himself for future service. And so Peter has, slinks off into shame. Um, Peter feels disgraced. He feels discouraged. He feels like he's disqualified himself from service. You know, one of the most powerful weapons that Satan has in his arsenal is self-condemnation and self-doubt. When we mess up as Christians and we go to God for forgiveness and we admit our mistake and we know that we are forgiven, yet the guilt from what we have done seems to hang around us like a millstone hanging around a swimmer's neck. And that millstone diminishes our self-confidence and it diminishes our self-worth such that we can sideline ourselves for service to the Lord. We stop contributing. We stop dreaming. And that's what Peter has done. He's let God down. He's let his Lord down. He's let his family down. He's let his friends down. But here's what I love about this story. Please don't miss this. Jesus went looking for Peter. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you just love that about this story? That Peter went up there and he had made these assessments about himself, but Jesus came looking. Praise God for that, for Peter. Disqualification may have been Peter's self-assessment, but that was not the Lord's conclusion. Here's what I'd like for us to do with the time that we have remaining. is knowing that disgrace and shame and self-disqualification 
can present humility or can represent humility gone too far, can represent false conclusions that the Lord does not make. I'd like for us to take a few moments to talk about three ways that we can recover when we have made big mistakes in life. Three ways that we can recover when we've made big mistakes in life. Number one, first thing, is to always begin with repentance. Repentance is admitting that what we did was wrong. Friends, we cannot launch into healthy self-concept and to beginning to be fruitful for the Lord again until we have repented. Listen to these verses, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us <clears throat> from all unrighteousness. We tend to zero in on the latter part of that verse, that God cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that God's going to um, uh, forgive us of our sins. We love that part of the verse. But look at what is required for that to happen. The Bible says, if we confess our sins to the Lord. Friends, until we are willing to admit that what we did was wrong and to strive to turn away from that in the future, we do sideline ourselves from future service. How about Romans chapter 2 and verse 4? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, God wants to see repentance. God wants us to, to admit, you know what? That foolishness that I was involved in, yeah, that was wrong. How about Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13? Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. He will not recover. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friends, the road to recovery begins at repentance. Number two, second step in recovering from a mistake is to forgive ourselves, to forgive ourselves. For many of us, this is the most difficult step. We admit that we were wrong, and we have no trouble admitting that we were wrong. We actually feel sorry about what it was that we had done, and that's a good thing. However, forgiving ourselves and being willing to cut the rope that has the millstone attached while we're trying to tread water in life, that's not so easy. And so we launch ourselves into a period of self-imposed penance. And I'm not going to say that all self-imposed penance is bad. Sometimes we need to mope around. Right? Sometimes we need to go through a period of feeling godly sorrow about the behavior that we've been engaged in. It's just the natural process of recovery. But friends, how much of that is enough? When have we moped enough? When is it time to cut the rope and let the millstone go? Um, the people that Jesus has forgiven us, the people that we've hurt have forgiven us, or at least we've given them the opportunity to do so. Friends, eventually Jesus is going to come looking for you. And when he does, we don't say, Lord, I just need to stay back here in this boat for a little while longer. God, I need to sit here and wallow in what I did for a little while longer. I know that you're calling me out of the boat, and I know that there's things that you want me to do over there on that shoreline. You want me to re-engage and get involved and, and realize my potential for you. But God, I think I just need to stay here in this boat a little while longer. Friends, when Jesus comes looking for us, we need to get out of the boat Swim to the shore, exuberantly greet him who sets us free, stop the moping, stop the self-effacing, stop the self-limiting, forgive ourselves, and move on. Friends, if you are stuck in a self-imposed holding pattern of shame and guilt, it is time to get out of the boat. Amen? It is time for us to forgive ourselves. Number three. Number three and finally. If we want to recover from mistakes that we've made, 
We need to set some goals and to begin to dream again. We need to set some goals and to begin to dream again. You know, I'm convinced that Peter never thought Jesus would show up to talk to him ever again. Peter just figured, you know, the relationship that I had with him is something in the past. And maybe I'll cross paths with Jesus while he's out doing his ministry. He'll have some other people that he'll bring into his employ. I I won't be one of them. You know, I wonder how many of us think that we've been disqualified like that. We've made some mistakes. Perhaps perhaps some of them were whoppers, like in Peter's case. And we just think that (coughs) whatever plans or dreams God had for me, that those are just a thing of the past. Friends, that is a lie from the devil. Think about it. Who wins in that scenario? Does God win? No. Does God get glorified? No. Do you win? Do you get to see the potential of your life fulfilled? No. The devil's the one who wins in that scenario. Led by that kind of thinking, the devil effectively sidelines us and our potential and our energies and our talents for service to the Lord. Essentially, he takes us out of the game. You know, if Jesus thought that the devil was right about Peter, then why did Jesus ever go looking for Peter? Let me ask that again. If Jesus thought the devil was right in his conclusion that Peter needed to be sidelined, that Peter needed to be disqualified, then why did Jesus ever go looking for Peter? Why did he show up and cook breakfast with the disciples? Why did he bother to reconnect with Peter if he had thought Peter was disqualified? I want to close out today by sharing with you a story. It's the story of John Newton. I have a picture of him for you here. He was born in 1725, died in 1807. Interestingly enough, the same year, not long after, uh, the Slavery Act was passed um, in Britain. And you'll understand more why as we talk about his story. John Newton is most famous for, for being the author of the song Amazing Grace. We know the song Amazing Grace. John Newton authored that. Here's his story. John Newton grew up in England in the 1700s. He was the son of a merchant marine, a shipboat captain. At the age of seven, John's mother died. But before she died, over those many years, she taught him to memorize scripture. She taught him uh, hymns and songs. And she she planted all of God's word deep down in his heart. At the age of 11, 11, John would leave home and join the family business. He began his life as a sailor at the age of 11. Now, if you recall from history, the slave trade and the African slave trade was in its heyday in the 1700s. John Newton was very much a part of that. Newton traveled up and down the coast of Africa, picking up his cargo, carrying those captured indigenous peoples to the Americas. Newton would even go inland himself into Africa and help capture and inflict brutality on the native peoples. Newton was a direct participant in some, many of the unconscionable acts that took place He trafficked thousands of people across the oceans. He was not a nice man. And it's for this reason that Newton would write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Talking about himself. That saved a wretch like me. Newton was pulling no punches. He knew what he had done. He knew the horror of his sin as he looked backward toward it. His words drew the starch contrast between the vile acts that he had committed and the holiness of a loving God which made the grace of God all that much more amazing to him. One night in 1747, while heading across the Atlantic, Newton's ship was hit by a violent storm. He spent 11 hours standing at the helm of the ship, steering the ship, trying to keep it from being swamped. At one point, Newton cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
continued to steer the ship through the night, and the ship did make it through. Um, and uh, after the, the storm was over and the, the night was over, Newton said to his fellow sailors, if there is a God out there who answers prayers like that, then I want to know who that God is. Newton would later write about that incident in, the hymn, in his hymn, Amazing Grace. He wrote, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Newton would eventually leave the merchant marine altogether. He learned Greek and Hebrew and studied to become a pastor. I got a picture for you here of the parish that he um, led in Olney, England. There are a couple pictures. Um, it was out in the English countryside, about 60 miles north of London, England. In 1772, while preparing for a Sunday sermon, Newton would pen those words that the world has come to know as amazing grace. Now, what's interesting is that's not the end of Newton's story. I mean, that he produced this marvelous hymn that we all know and sing worldwide uh, is remarkable in and of itself. But again, not the end of his story. In addition to his pastoral work, Newton would become an outspoken abolitionist. In fact, Newton would publish a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. It sold through so many copies in the first week that the publisher had to reprint it in the first week. From Newton's description, the English public was made aware of the horrors and the atrocities of the slave trade. He wrote, and I quote, It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Newton would be the driving force and the chief encourager of his good friend William Wilberforce, who would lead England to um, adopt the Slave Trade Act of 1807. The Slave Trade Act would bring England's involvement in the slave trade to an end. Now, let me ask you this. What if John Newton had sidelined himself? What if John Newton had said, you know what, because of what I've done, I'm, I'm just disqualified, Jesus, for serving you. What if Newton had assessed himself as unworthy? Friends, thank God that Jesus went looking for John Newton. And thank God that Jesus went looking for the Apostle Peter. And friends, thank God that Jesus went looking for you and me. The question for us to answer, and I close with this, is will we take the steps to recover from perhaps some really big mistakes. Number one, will we repent to the Lord? Number two, will we forgive ourselves? And number three, will we begin to dream again? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for a fresh reminder that you get the last word. Thank you that you are a God of incredible grace amazing grace. Lord, there are no depths to which we can fall, from which, Lord, you cannot pick our pieces back up and help us to recover. God, all we want to do is to glorify you with our lives. Show us the way forward. Lord, if there's some steps that we need to take to uh, facilitate that recovery, to once again arrive at potential that's within us to glorify you with our lives. Or may we be faithful to walk through those doors, to 
take those steps to follow your lead. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your outstretched arms. We thank you for your broken body, your shed blood. In these quiet moments of communion this morning, Lord, heal our hearts. Holy Spirit, encourage us. Remind us of our great worth to you. Lord, we submit this time to you and pray that you'll use it. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.